If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All I do know is that nobody was ever charged. Alberta didn't just go missing. She didn't just go missing, and she didn't just walk away. She knew the person. She trusted the person. You still feel like people are afraid? Probably, you know. It's been really hard because some of our immediate family members were a person of interest and suspects in uh, being involved with Alberta that night. Were you afraid to go to the police? Yeah. I just had to be quiet. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done here? We really just want to get your side of the story. We're doing the story about Alberta, and we really want to hear from you about her last night. Can you tell us anything about it? Was she at your house? I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams, a podcast and CBC News investigation. In the summer of 1989, Alberta Gail Williams was 24 years old, working in a fish cannery in Prince Rupert, a remote town on the coast in northern British Columbia. August 25th was her last day of work. It was a Friday night, and she went out to a local bar to celebrate the end of the summer. But it was the last night any of her family saw her again. She disappeared, and three weeks later, her body was found, in a remote area along a highway outside of town. Her sister Claudia was with her that Friday night. Then I turned around and Alberta said, come with us, come with us, we're going to a party. In between her saying that and my head turning like this, and then she said, Claudia, Claudia, and she goes, come with me. And then, you know, I just looked and I said a couple of words to my boyfriend. I turned around In that sort of time, she was gone. Gone. It's been 27 years, and Alberta's death is still a mystery. Reporting on an unsolved case is always tricky. No one has ever been charged. Nothing has been heard in court. You can't rely on transcripts or evidence. It's sometimes a struggle to piece together even the most basic information. And getting information from the police is always difficult because no matter how old a case is, if it's still unsolved, it's still considered open. And because it's open, police are very careful about what little they can say. We asked the RCMP about Alberta's case. Here's a statement from Staff Sergeant Rob Vermeulen. Well, given there is an ongoing investigation into the homicide of Alberta Williams, I can only provide limited information on the case. He goes on to describe things that we already know, things that were published in a local newspaper when she disappeared, details like when and where. I can tell you that Alberta was last seen in the downtown area of Prince Rupert during the early morning hours of August 26, 1989. When she was last seen. Vicinity of Popeye's Pub. 
what she was wearing. Alberta was wearing a pale blue sweatshirt, black cloth pants, black leather shoes, and carrying a black shoulder strap purse. And then information about where her body was found. Her body was located approximately 37 kilometers east of Prince Rupert along Highway 16 on September the 16th, 1989. And this key phrase. Foul play is suspected. Foul play is suspected. In another story, it might have ended there. But Alberta's case is different because one of the lead investigators in her homicide is now retired. Gary Kerr hasn't stopped thinking about Alberta Williams and the person he believes got away with murder. There's lots I haven't told you and I never would tell you. Because if the investigation, maybe it's ongoing right now, I would never want to do anything to compromise any investigation. But it's, in my heart, I know who's responsible. Gary can't tell us everything, but he's willing to share a lot. He's given us unprecedented access to Alberta's case in interviews, but also in his police notebooks from the time. And literally, I had to go downstairs and dust off a box of books and then thumb through them to find them. And, and again, it's, it's emotional standing here talking to you because it's like I lived it, I breathed it. This has stuck with you? Oh, absolutely, it stuck with me. And I'd never actually seen a police notebook before. It's basically just a little black book about the size of a passport and about as thin, only about 30 pages, easy to flip through. Basically, I just go on to describe the way the remains were, describe the area, it was heavily treed. These are very detailed notes. On the front of every book is a white label with his name, Constable Gary Kerr. And these are just observations that I would have made at the time. The distance from the end of the paved portion to the body would be about 70, or at least 75 yards. Location, Prince Rupert, and a date range, September 6th to 17th, 1989. Heavy equipment down there that would have belonged to the railway, I just made note of that. And inside every cover is a copy of the Charter of Rights and the section police must read to every person they arrest. This is the Charter of Rights, an official warning that appears in my notebooks from 1989. It is my duty to inform you that you have the right to retain and instruct counsel without delay. Do you understand? Also, you are not obliged to say anything, but anything you do say may be given in evidence. After 30 years in the RCMP, Gary's recited those words countless times. But there's one person he wishes he could have been able to say them to. The person that I'm speaking of is somebody that, for all the right reasons you would think, would want to sit down with the police and do absolutely everything they could to find Alberta. And that didn't happen. Like, like that didn't happen big time sort of thing. Gary told us in an email the name of the person he believes killed Alberta. But before we reveal that person's identity, we're tracking down people who were there with Alberta that Friday night. Through our interviews and Gary's notebooks, we want to try to piece together as much information as we can about Alberta's murder and her last night. It was kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision. She asked me, she said, Claudia, we're all going to bogies tonight. Do you want to come? I said, well, I don't know, maybe. Then I thought about it, and I'm like, well, got nothing else planned, may as well go. So I did. 
Claudia says she didn't sit at the table with Alberta at the bar that night, but that she watched her all night long. That table was full and there was no place to sit, so I guess I really can't tell you why I was keeping an eye on here. Maybe my gut instinct told me to keep an eye. Claudia remembers Alberta sat with a large group of friends and family members that night. I called Claudia back after that interview just to double-check the names of the people she remembers seeing with Alberta. Kevin and Carol, Gordon, baby showed up, Alberta was there. So there was Carol Russell, that's Alberta's cousin. Carol was there with her boyfriend, Kevin Kitchen. Alberta's close friend, Phoebe McLean, was with her husband, Gordon McLean. And there was Jack Little and his brother, Alphonse Little. We tried contacting some of them, but to be honest, we didn't have much luck at first. It's been 27 years. People scatter, and some people just don't want to talk about it, much less to a reporter. It's the truth. It's the truth. We only, we only want to, to hear the truth, and, we only, and it's so important for people to tell the truth about what happened to Alberta. But my producer and I were able to reach some of the other people who were at the bar that night. I noticed uh, Jack. He called me over. He said, I said, hey, would you like a beer? A beer? And I, he said yes. And then when they're at the table, I seen um, someone named Carol. And she was with, the, I believe it was a white guy. Was Alberta at the table as well? I think she was there. We were we were in the table beside her, but up on a platform a bit, and I I noticed that she was she was pretty intoxicated, and I kept trying to talk to her, and and then I spoke to Carol trying to get her to get Alberta home. Mm-hmm. Who who was at that table from what you can remember? At that time, I was only fixated on Alberta. I didn't even think to see who else was there. Okay. So. Oh, hi. Is Gordon there, please? Yep, just a minute. Thanks. Okay. You don't have any recollection of Jack being there, you said? No, no. Did you know a guy named Kevin Kitchen? Kevin Kitchen. The white guy? I don't know. You tell me that's what they heard he might be. Yeah, who is he? Um, I only heard his name, but I really never met the guy. But I remember, I can't remember if it was Audrey's boyfriend or Audrey Russell's boyfriend. I'm, I'm not too sure, but, or Carol's. Hmm, Carol but Russell? One of the Russell. Yeah, but that's who um, Alberta hung around with. Do you remember seeing Carol at the bar that night? Yeah, I did. Was she sitting with Alberta? I don't recall, but I know they they were always hanging together. Carol was dating someone around that time, a white guy named Kevin Kitchen. Did you ever meet yeah. him? Yeah. What was he like? He's outgoing. Is Kevin still in Rupert or around Rupert? I don't even know where he is at all. Gordon McLean. He was there too, him and his uh, ex-wife, Phoebe. They were both there too. 
Oh, okay. Were, were they with you guys at the end of the night as well? I... I... Everybody's scattered. Hello? Hi. Hi, Geraldine. How are you? Geraldine Morrison was Alberta's best friend. She was at the bar that night. She left early but remembers they had a strange interaction with a man in the bar before she left. But there was one guy that came in and was hollering away at us. I don't know if he was hollering away directly at her or what, but he was kind of upset what was happening at the bar. I don't know who he was. Could have been just a stranger. What did what did he look like? Um, he was short, light brown hair, fair, clean face, um, medium built. Was he was he white or he, native? He was Caucasian. He looked he looked white. And when did you when did you notice him that night? About eleven o'clock. And he came into the bar, or he came up to you, to you in Alberta? He came right up to the, the table we were all sitting on. What did he say? He was just saying that we were being loud, um, and it's kind of stupid how you get together. And we told him, just, just leave. It's, it's none of your business. We don't know you. Go away. But the bartender, he come up and asked that person to leave us alone because we weren't being too rude or anything in the bar, eh? and we were just being happy and everything, and they, they understood. But this guy, he come up and was getting pissed off. It's a lot to expect people to remember anything about a random night in a bar 27 years ago. Memory is a tricky thing. Are people remembering what they actually saw, or what they or possibly others have recalled over the years? I have no real reason to doubt any of their accounts, however specific or vague, but I'm mindful of the contradictions that inevitably surface when asking about events that happened decades ago. But Claudia seems to have a vivid picture of that last night she saw her sister and what happened in the moments before she disappeared. I turned around. In that sort of time, she was gone. Gone. So were all the people there. Where did they go? Where did, how come they moved so fast? Why did they move so fast? I was part of the, I was part of the group. Why did they, why did they feel the need to move fast? Alberta was calling me. So what happened to her out there? Did somebody just grab her? Somebody must have just grabbed her in a way for Alberta not to, you know. She was calling me. She was calling me. She wanted you to go with her. And she wouldn't just leave me like that. She wouldn't just leave me and say, okay, you know what, I'm going anyway. In an instant, Claudia's life changed forever. Alberta was gone, and she would never see her sister again. But for 27 years, she has not given up on finding her sister's killer. It took me the longest time because I was consumed with this. I was consumed with it because every day, you know, before I go to sleep at night, I was thinking, like... Just running through it all again in your mind. All again. All again. It was, like, continuous. Then I thought, you know, I said... It was a lot of self-blame. A lot of self-blame. 
then I thought about it, you know, I went, you know what? There's nothing I can do about it right now. The most that I can do about it right now is to find out who did this. Do you feel like you know who's responsible? Yeah, yeah. The first entry in Gary's notebook about Alberta Williams is on August 29, 1989, four days after she disappeared. In my extremely scribbly writing, which hasn't changed a bit, but it just says... Uh, Friday night. You know, missing person, Alberta Williams, uh, her birthday, July 8th, 1962, 24 years old, was in Popeyes on Friday night. We asked Gary to read some of his notebook entries for us. This is uh, book number 1A, pages 13 and 14. These are from the day after Alberta was reported missing. 2010 Hours Popeye's Pub Inquiries. Marjorie Nylon, N-Y-L-A-N. Worked behind the counter all night. Negative. Danny Alexi. Gary goes on to list 18 bar employees. And behind some of their names, it says neg or negative. Working at 2200 hours tonight. Negative. And why would you have crossed them out? That you talk to them and they don't have information? Or yeah, what was the... I think uh, what I would have done here, I probably got the list of people that were working that night. And then as I spoke to them, I just put a single line through it. I mean, you can still read the name and their contact numbers and whatnot. Then for the next 10 pages of his notebook are entries about another unrelated case, a fraud investigation. I've looked at several of Gary's notebooks now, and that seems pretty typical. Things jump around a lot. The RCMP detachment in Prince Rupert was small, with only two plainclothes officers like Gary. He seemed to work on several cases at once. Reading Gary's notebooks is incredibly helpful in understanding the timeline of events after Alberta disappeared. But there are also gaps. Gary's notebooks only tell part of the picture. It quickly becomes apparent that he wasn't the only investigator working on Alberta's case. This will be book number 1A, starting on page 25, 89-0901. Like this next entry about Alberta, from September 1st, 1989. RR and self, inquiries on Crestview. I'm referring to myself and Rick Ross making neighborhood inquiries on Crestview Avenue. It seems like in the three days that Gary was busy working on the fraud case, another investigator heard about a possible party on Crestview Avenue a quiet residential street. Wendy Andreessen had grew up with Alberta in Port Edward. Have not seen her for about one year. Does recall hearing about a party on what she feels was last Friday night. Strange to see or hear a party around here. Jack Little, negative. Maybe they talked to Claudia or someone else who was with Alberta that night. But something obviously led the investigators to start door-knocking on Crestview Avenue. I asked Gary how he remembers the investigation unfolding. But I mean, that's where you have to start someplace, and where you start is at the beginning. And you go from A to B to C. You don't go from A to Z and then jump back to whatever. I mean, you start. So do you start with the people that you was last seen with? To me, this is like basic police work. And then from interviewing the number of people we did, and again, that was family, that was friends, that was uh, the bar staff that night.
144 Crestview, Dave McKenzie. Home last Friday night, got home around 2130 to 2200 hours. Noted people getting together last Friday, does not know the missing female. Says Jack has lived next door for one to two years. Very quiet around 2200. Nothing else heard all night long. No problems with Jack at all. Does not recall seeing a pickup truck. Possibly a black Toyota 4x4. Does not know if it was in his yard or not. A female at 145 Crestview says it's strange that Little's blinds are now always closed. According to Claudia, there were two men with that last name at the table that night with Alberta, Alphonse Little, and his brother Jack. Jack Little lived at 140 Crestview Avenue. Claudia says it was his party that Alberta said she was going to that night, after the bar, something she says he later denied. But Claudia admits she's not sure if that's actually where Alberta went, or if there even was a party at Jack's house that night. It's one of the many lingering questions that she still wants answers to. The people that were at the table, they're not saying anything. Why are they not saying anything? And, you know, and the person who hosted the party, how come you, you're saying you didn't have a party? Yet my sister told me you did. You know, she was inviting me there. Gary also wanted to talk to Jack. 890907. And according to his notebook, on September 7, 1989, almost two weeks after Alberta disappeared, he knocked on his door. 1618, 140 Crestview. Jack Little residence. No one home no vehicles. And because this next part is important, I want to explain something else. Gary is reading his notebooks for us not just because it sounds better, but because he is literally the only person who can actually read his handwriting. And so the pauses you hear occasionally as he is reading are not for tension or drama, but because sometimes even Gary has trouble deciphering his own chicken scratch. 1639, Friendship Center. Jack Little, questionnaire, tip number 50. When attended, Little was busy. Waited in the hallway for him. Red shorts and white t-shirt. Glasses, silver bracelet on right hand. Little and self to a large room at the end of the hallway. Little sat and I sat, Little sat and self next to him. Introduced self and explained the questionnaire. Little appeared to be very nervous, almost scared. Numerous times put head between hands and down toward the tabletop. Said he was trying to help out as best he could. Question number eight. You have to understand that I have a bad memory, times three. I just can't think right now. Not able to recall the names of the people he saw. When the questionnaire was complete, he told me of the psychic and also feels that there has been a tragic accident. Jack said the psychic called him from Calgary last. Oh my God, let me start over here. Jack said the psychic called him from Calgary. Last name, Shira Farrell. She felt that there was a lot of confusion 
and she feels the situation has gone from bad to worse. She feels there may have been an accident. Feels Alberta could be around Terrace, Smithers, or Prince George. Said that after the long weekend, that everything would be okay and that Alberta was heading to Vancouver. This information about the situation being okay was received by Jack's wife from her family. 1729, depart. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Jack Little wasn't just a casual acquaintance. He was related to Alberta, her uncle through marriage. Since Alberta told her that she was going to Jack's house that night, Claudia says in the days after she disappeared, her family called Jack's house to ask if he had seen her. You know, I'm not too sure who did the phoning around because it wasn't me, you know. It may have been mom, I'm not too sure. That phone said, is Alberta there? Nope, nope. Oh, did you see? Mom was very, like Alberta, very calm. Like, you know, she doesn't get angry or anything. She just says, oh, I'm looking for Alberta. Nope, didn't see her. Her parents searched Prince Rupert and contacted other friends and family, but no one had seen Alberta. It was unusual for her to disappear like that. And as days turned to weeks, her family and Gary began to worry that something was terribly wrong. And the more we dug into it, it was, you know, I mean, something wasn't adding up here like very, very quickly. And again, it was just from never having met Alberta in person, it was, it was apparent very, very quickly that this was completely out of character for her. You know, she was responsible. She was looking forward to going back to school. She had had a great summer up there. And she had gone out on her last night in town just to, you know, unwind, have a few drinks, have a few laughs, I guess. And when she left the nightclub that night, it was the last time she was ever seen alive. So again, very quickly, things progressed into, not necessarily, we didn't have a focus on any specific suspect. You know, there's initially, everybody's a suspect, I guess, if you will. But the more we looked into it, um, it was pretty apparent that something had probably happened to Alberta. You know, maybe she had met with foul play. In mid-September, three weeks after Alberta disappeared, their worst fears were confirmed. I think it was a Saturday. I got a phone call at home that there had been possibly some human remains found outside of Prince Rupert's. Did you think about Alberta when you got that call? You know, initially, the, if I remember right, the call was, it could be human remains, they don't know what it is. Alberta's body was found just off the road, along Highway 16, which is now known as the Highway of Tears. It's called that because since 1969, nearly two dozen women have either been killed or disappeared there. Many of their cases are still unsolved, 
and people have long suspected a serial killer is targeting women. In 2014, a local man was convicted of the murders of four women who were found or went missing from the Highway of Tears, but many believe he was not the only person preying on women. Prince Rupert is where Highway 16 begins. If you envision driving east on Highway 16, very busy highway, lots of heavy bush, I mean, it's basically a rainforest up there. Then off to the right is the Skeena River, which is a massive, big, huge river. And the, we pulled off Highway 16 to the right, and there was a bit of a, a pull-off, and I think it was used by railway crews at the time to maybe, I don't know, fix rail cars or something. It wasn't a, like, it wasn't a manicured spot. It was more of a gravel pull-off, but vehicles obviously used it. Unless you knew to look for it, the turnoff is easy to miss. Gary says it was a miracle that Alberta's body was ever found. And the people that had found, actually they didn't know what it was, and if memory serves me right, it was, well I know it was a family with a couple of kids and they had gone out there that day and they were, I forget what they were looking for, whether it was mushrooms or bottles, I, could, I can't even remember. But I do know it was one of the kids that had stumbled across something. And he had called one of his parents over, or maybe both, to look at whatever this was. And I, they thought it was maybe human remains, but they weren't even sure. And it was uh, kind of a boggy area, and it was, there was a bit of a, uh, an indent, indentation on the ground, sort of a, like a natural hollow. It, there was quite a bit of water there, and it was, uh, it was, it was obviously a body, you know, as soon as we seen it. You recognized it as... Well, absolutely. You know, right away, as soon as you look at it, you know it's a human body. But it was the body was uh, face down in this trench, if you will, and there had been a bunch of debris and stuff placed over the body. Someone was trying to cover it up. Yeah, absolutely. Gary's notebook has several pages filled with details about where Alberta's body was found including a map of the exact location, the position of her body, what she was wearing, and her physical injuries. The details are incredibly graphic. We won't share them all. Gary says they spent days there, searching for evidence to help find Alberta's killer or killers. What do you do when you're, you're there for two or three days? Uh, one of the first things you do is to just cordon the entire area off, and we had a huge area just like you'd see in the movies, you know, the police tape. Um, somebody's always there recording who's coming and going. Uh, basically, the first thing you do is you don't touch anything. And then you bring in the forensic people. So the scene was meticulously examined, and there was a fair amount of forensic evidence seized at the time. It was obvious to me and my partner that there had been, I would say, a very violent struggle at that location. And and the reason we come to that conclusion, again, is because of what was found at that location. Like two and two was adding up to four pretty quick in terms of, you know, was she sexually assaulted? I mean, I can't say conclusively, but my op if it was just my opinion, absolutely, without question, horrendously.
We have to remember that no matter how careful or meticulous Gary and the other officers were with the physical evidence, this was 1989, before DNA analysis became crucial to police work. They were limited in what they could determine using physical evidence alone. Were you, like, did the autopsy reveal anything surprising for you? It did, yeah, it did. There was, um, again, I just, I'm reluctant to say too much. Sure, yeah, no, absolutely. But there, there was a couple of things that were, I don't know if they're unique, but certainly one of them was unique, I guess you could say. Were you able to determine cause of death for Alberta? Yes. Is that something that you released or would no, you release? You no, we can't. What I can't say is she, she was murdered. Absolutely no question. You know, she was a victim of a homicide. She was killed. Well, she died a horrible death. I mean, it is like there's no way to minimize it. And everything from the investiga investigation does suggest that she was killed that night. You know, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that she was went to Vancouver for a week or something and then came back. So the people that she was with that night then became pe persons of interest for Absolutely, you. yeah, absolutely. So again, the investigation went from, very quickly from a case of uh, missing persons to a, a homicide case. Their homicide investigation began the same place as their missing persons case, back to the beginning, trying to find out what happened after Alberta left the bar that night and how she ended up in that remote spot by the river. So you go back and to square one, if you will. You go over the statements, you re-interview people. Are you sure you've seen this? Are you sure you didn't see that? And you'll review the statements. Okay, what did so-and-so say? What did so-and-so say? And within... And again, it certainly wasn't overnight by any stretch, but we did focus on a certain person. And that person became very quickly uncooperative with us. You start to wonder why. That's what happens in Alberta's case. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, again, not that that makes somebody a murderer. I'm not suggesting that for a second. But, you know, sometimes it's those little red flags that, and maybe a number of little red flags, will catch your attention enough. Part of an investigator's job is to follow those red flags, but also to keep an open mind and investigate all leads, even the ones that seem implausible. This person, who we believe was the last person to have seen Alberta, uh, this person said that Alberta had got into a pickup truck, I don't even think there was a color attached to it, with a Caucasian guy with long blonde hair. And this person said that's the last time he's seen Alberta. Well, we couldn't find anybody else that, you know, seen this truck, albeit vague in description, this unknown white guy with long blonde hair. And quite frankly, I don't think it ever existed. And the person, again, that was what this person told us is they had seen Alberta get into this vehicle. They went to a house, and then when this person woke up, Alberta and this guy with the long blonde hair was gone. Was this mystery white guy another possible suspect in Alberta's murder, or a red herring meant to distract Gary from someone else who was becoming the main suspect? Prince Rupert's a fairly small place in terms of 
We're not talking downtown Vancouver. And especially in a situation like with Alberta that night, she was with a number of close friends, family members. Her sister Claudia. Her sister Claudia. Again, people that I would say are, they're credible. They're believable. They've got no reason to lie to you. Um, but why nobody else would have seen this mystery vehicle with this mystery person of whom the description was so generic, it would be like a, blonde, or, or a Caucasian guy with blonde hair. Like, are you kidding me? But nobody else seen that pickup truck? There was no white guy with blonde hair sitting at their table. I mean, there wasn't. Gary says they put out a bulletin for the white guy and the pickup truck, but nothing turned up. Claudia also heard the rumor about a blonde-haired guy with a truck outside the bar that night. I can't remember where I heard that, but that was kind of the story that was going around. I'm like, well, who the heck is a blonde-haired guy? I didn't see any blonde-haired guy at the table. And she didn't know any blonde-haired guys. And Alberta wouldn't go off on her own with anybody. At the end of the night, did you see a blonde-haired guy in a pickup truck outside the cabaret? And uh, no, I didn't see anything, any truck or blonde-haired guy. I don't think there is a blonde-haired guy. I think it's something to distract the police in another direction. That's what I think. Gary says in their investigation into Alberta's murder, they did something that was unusual at the time. They brought in a profiler, someone who had been trained by the FBI. But when we met him as the investigators, when we first met him, he doesn't want to know anything about the case, like nothing. He doesn't want to know the name of the victim. He doesn't want to know, he doesn't know what I want or what I think, he doesn't care. So his job is to basically take the evidence, and in those days it would have been these banker boxes full of papers. And he would have gone through all the papers and then he would give us his opinion, which he did as to whether he felt there was anything from a profiler's point of view that might assist with the investigation, and he did. And the information he gave us, albeit fairly generic, certainly fit with what we're sitting here talking about today. So it, it gave weight to your, to your suspicions? It did. Again, it wasn't the silver bullet by any stretch, but again, it certainly confirmed to some degree what we were, what we were looking at. Gary had his suspicions about what happened that night, but he needed more evidence before anyone could be charged. But based on everything he gathered, he came up with a theory about Alberta's murder. And if I can say it, and I'm not in the RCMP anymore, so I will say it, but is, and this is just my own belief. I know we spoke about the highway of tears, and I mean, it's horrible the number of women, Aboriginal or otherwise, that have gone missing or murdered or whatever. But... I don't believe this was a case. I believe this was a one-off. I believe the person that did it, I think it was a, I don't think it was ever intended to happen. I think it was just something that got out of hand. Alberta was a young, very attractive girl. Um, I think it was just something that kind of went from maybe having some fun or a few laughs to like, my God, what have I done? And now I have to do something because 
you can't tell, you can't ever tell anybody what I did. Uh, I, that's what I believe. It's just chilling to think that. Yeah, it is. Gary's investigation continued, and looking through the rest of his notebooks, it looks like he didn't personally get to talk to everyone who sat at the table with Alberta that night. Maybe one of the other investigators did, or maybe they didn't. But ultimately, the homicide investigation into the death of Alberta Williams hit a dead end. And you hit a, you hit a brick wall. Yeah, absolutely. A big brick wall. I'm sure there's still investigative options available to it. But, you know, I guess being realistic about it, it's like, you know, when we speak of the, the highway of tears, um, you know, all the missing and murdered women that have, you know, again, it's, unfortunately, there's another murder, and then another murder, and then another murder, and then, and you hate to say it, but it's the truth. I mean, it's, there just simply isn't the resources all the time to go back. But now, there's unprecedented attention on the Highway of Tears and the hundreds of other cases of missing or murdered Indigenous women. A national inquiry is underway. And although police may have hit a dead end, our investigation into Alberta's murder is just beginning. Was there a mysterious white guy in a pickup truck that Alberta went with at the end of the night? Did Jack have a party? Did Alberta go? How did Alberta end up on the Highway of Tears? To answer some of those questions, we need to track down some of the people who were with Alberta that night. And we do, on the next episode of Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams? But uh, nobody seems to be cooperating, uh, the so-called witnesses or people that were in, in uh, contact with uh, Alberta that night. And a lot of them were family members. We're definitely doing this story about Alberta, and we're really, we really just need his help trying to piece together some of the the last hours of her life. And her mom said, told her, "Well, you need to go to the police and tell them." But she said, "I don't want to do that because I don't want your sister to. I don't want nothing to happen to her. She was afraid for my sister." If she spoke out, eh? To read excerpts of Gary's notebook and explore more of the story online, visit our website at cbc.ca slash whokilledalbertawilliams. You can listen to episodes there or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Missing and Murdered Who Killed Alberta Williams is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. The producer is Marnie Luke, and the associate producer is Lori Ward. Technical production by Cecil Fernandez and Harold Dupuis. R.F. Narani is a consulting producer, and Heather Evans is senior producer of the CBC News Investigative Unit. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.